to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to crisis management, business continuity, disaster planning, uh, resilience, and anything that's relatable to those topics. Speaking of topics, I'd like to remind everybody, if there is something specific you want us to talk about on the show, please feel free, go to the homepage for the show on the voiceamerica.com website. There is a button underneath the graphic that says something to the effect of send host an email. And I do get all emails and I do respond to everything. Also, I want to remind everyone I will be at the Continuity Resilience Today conference, October 7th and 8th in Toronto. Um, We've been there the last couple of years and have had a great time, met a lot of great people there. So hopefully uh, we'll see some of you there as well. If there's anything you'd like to advertise or uh, be a sponsor on the show, we do have uh, positions uh, available. Please uh, get in touch with me. Same way, uh, same button underneath the graphic, and I can send you some information on uh, sponsorship and advertising. And uh, speaking of advertising, I'd like to thank everybody at Stone Road and their product, Boast Assessment, who are sponsoring today's show. And uh, Boast Assessment allows you to track the progress of your business continuity management programs uh, to allow you to focus your resources in the right spots. Now, to today's show. As uh, all of you should know by now, you know I love to read. I read uh, a couple of books every week, and there's usually more than one on the go at any given time. And a few months ago, I was reading a book and came across uh, somebody's name who kept getting uh, repeated a lot. So I looked up that person and uh, looked up and found that they had a couple of books of their own. So I got them and uh, started reading uh, their work. And I thought, you know what, this is really interesting stuff. And I want to get see if I can get this person on the show to talk to us today. So I really want to welcome, and I'm happy to have here, uh, Professor Kathleen Tierney. Kathleen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alex. Uh, Would you like me to call you Kathleen or Professor? Well, uh, Kathleen would be fine, although I am a professor. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've I've had uh, professors on the show, some like professor and some would prefer their first name. So I thought I'd better clarify with you just in case. So the book that got uh, me interested um, and wanted to reach out to uh, Kathleen was her book, Disasters, A Sociological Approach. Um, and I do recommend it to everyone. It's very interesting and it does look at things a little bit differently. Um, so I'm very, like I said, happy to have uh, Professor Kathleen Tierney on the show today. Uh, But just in case anyone isn't familiar um, with what uh, you do, uh, could you kind of give us a quick uh, minute or two, uh, a biography of what you do and, you know, how you got to where you are today? Well, I am a sociologist, and I have been um, working 
since the time that I was a graduate student um, on projects that look at the societal dimensions of hazards, disasters, and risk. And by the societal dimension or societal approach, um, I'm talking about um, all different social aspects of the way that people and communities and institutions perceive risk, um, prepare for different risks and disasters, the way they respond, the way they recover. Um, in other words, the social aspects and the social impacts of disasters. Um, at the same time, um, I'm also interested in the societal origin of disasters. Um, as another uh, disaster researcher who is a sociologist, a guy by the name of Dennis Maletti, said, uh, societies design their own disasters. We have Disasters by oh. Design, which is the title of a book um, that, that he put out in 1999. So in addition to looking at, at what the societal dimensions and impacts of disasters are, um, my work is also interested in the societal origins of the risks that we face. I think you had a, I think your other book actually deals with that, if I recall. Yes, this is, I have it within arm's reach. The Social uh, Roots of Risk, right? The Social Roots of Risk, that's exactly right, which talks about, and um, my newer book, Disasters, a Sociological Approach, talks about the fact that disasters have their origins in the social order itself. Disasters aren't events that you know, hit us from outside of the social order, from the environment, for example, um, or from viruses, uh, they actually have their origins in our own social life, our social order, social processes, social structures. Well, I, I know we had a bit of an outline based on the book, um, and as yes. we're recording, we're kind of in a, uh, well, we're in quite a uh, pandemic uh, situation right now with COVID-19. So yes. I'm, I'm wondering with the, with what you just explained regarding, you know, uh, societal um, design, we kind of, you know, create our own disasters. How would that, or do you think that the COVID-19 uh, pandemic right now kind of relates to that? Um, as a matter of fact, uh, it does. It relates very closely. Now, as we know, these coronaviruses come into our society um, from from animals, right? Uh, from mm -hmm. from birds, from pigs, and the like. But how they get into our society and what happens when they get there is a function of social processes, right? The, the, uh, the interactions that we have with these hosts and the vectors of disaster, or in this case, pandemic, um, as well as how quickly and how effectively different societies can um, reduce those threats or reduce those risks. And again, if we look at the spread of a pandemic and if we look at historically at what we know about other pandemics, 
It has a lot to do, in other words, the spread of these pandemics have a lot to do with the measures that societies undertake to contain them. Or lack thereof? Or lack thereof, exactly. So considering what's happening now in the world, and it's spreading rather quickly, and especially in Spain, Italy, you know, it's starting to really take off in the United States. What kind of things were we doing or not doing that allowed that to happen? Well, the the um, epidemiologists, the scientists who study um, these kinds of events, really emphasize uh, trying to understand the transmission patterns of these viruses and also measures that can be taken to mitigate the spread. And what we're seeing now, of course, is different societies around the world taking different approaches to how rapidly and how strictly they are attempting to contain the spread of the virus and the spread of illnesses. This is referred to in the public health community as mitigation. Mm -hmm. So how come, or, or what, are, what are your thoughts all these different nations are using different approaches. If society is society, you know, how come there are so many different approaches and some may be working, some don't seem to be working? Why isn't there, you know, some sort of a, an approach we could take all together? Is there a reason for that? Of course, because <laughs> societies differ along a number of dimensions. In China, for example, um, there was a belated effort to clamp down on the spread of the virus. And because of the structure of Chinese society, that is, that it is an authoritarian society that can institute draconian measures very quickly, uh, we saw the lockdown of um, areas where the virus was spreading most quickly, uh, there was the ability to really shut down societal activity very rapidly because this is an authoritarian society and a command economy. In other mm -hmm. societies, such as the United States and Canada, these are democratic societies, both of which place a lot of emphasis on the rights and the freedom of individuals. So we have seen a slowdown in measures that might um, infringe on those freedoms and an effort to balance freedom and the need to contain the virus in very strictly organized authoritarian societies like Singapore, um, which is also a smaller society. Uh, again, you saw very rapid measures being put into place, measures that um, might be controversial in some other societies. So is it possible that United States and Canada, we could end up you know, in the same situation as Italy? Because having been to Italy and experienced their culture, they're, they're very, um, and it's not a bad thing, they're very, um, how, how should I say this, they're a lot closer, they're a lot more social, um, you know, um, I don't, I don't, I'm not quite sure how to say it, but... Um, you know, people uh, co-mingle a lot, you know, the you know, cafes and things like that, you know. Uh, 
it, did that contribute to their problem? And how how can we do that on this side of the ocean, let's say? Well, I think that um, we have to look at different societies, and the research has yet to be done, and to mm-hmm. see how, first of all, how early were authorities aware of the problem? Secondly, how quickly were they able to act? Third, were the actions that they undertook and recommended effective? And finally, and this is something that we're going to really be looking at closely and grappling with, how long do such measures have to be in place to slow the spread of a virus like this? Well, that's an interesting uh, point there because, um, you know, human beings, we're social creatures. You know, two weeks, I, I know I'm you know into a week and a half already and I'm going stir crazy at home. So... <laughs> Uh, how do we how do we kind of go longer than that? You know, what do we do? Well, I think, and I, I want to go back, Alex, to talk about what goes on in disasters, the mm-hmm. kinds of the kinds of occurrences that most of us are familiar with, and maybe that our listeners can can relate to. What you see in disaster situations is a lot of pro-social behavior, a flowering of helping behavior, um, a, um, a more of a willingness to innovate and to improvise and to find new ways of doing things. And I think what we're seeing now in this horrible situation is some of the same sorts of things. Uh, we have to improvise and innovate about schooling of mm-hmm. youth and university students and PhD students. We have to improvise and innovate um, about how um, the restaurant and the entertainment industries are going to be able to survive. Uh, curbside delivery, carryout. I mean, we're seeing a tremendous amount of innovation, and we're seeing all sorts of things taking place online. You know, I have a I have a nine year old granddaughter in Oakland, California, who among other things, uh, takes taekwondo lessons and she's taking her lessons online. She suits up, she puts on her uniform and she gets ready to go. And we're seeing again and again all kinds of things like this happening on social media with people offering to help, people saying, I have, I can go to the store for you, I can bring food for you. A lot of social activity that is incredibly meaningful is taking place even as we are, quote unquote, isolated. <laughs> hmm. Well, that's interesting that you said that because Hollywood and governments would have us believe that it's all chaos and panic. Oh, well, that's an old story in the disaster research literature. You know, um, disaster research as we know it in the social sciences started in the West in the aftermath of the Second World War and with the knowledge that the U.S. and the then Soviet Union had nuclear weapons. And some of the earliest disaster research, which was undertaken in the late 1940s, was sponsored by um, the military. And Mm. they wanted to know whether 
if there was a nuclear war, heaven forbid, whether affected populations would panic, whether antisocial behavior would break out, whether um, massive mental health problems would develop, and whether uh, it would even be possible to reconstitute society after a nuclear attack. Uh, not being able to simulate a nuclear attack uh, in the laboratory, uh, they thought, well, let's look at what communities do in the aftermath of disasters and see whether that would provide some insights for us for how people might respond in the event of nuclear war. And, of course, the early findings uh, were just about the opposite of what these military funders, that, you know, like the Office of naval research in the United States, what they mm -hmm. were worried about. Actually, um, there was little panic. Um, people behaved very well. Norms developed that um, ruled over people's conduct after disasters, um, similar to what we're seeing now with the development of new norms around social distancing and um, uh, hand-washing and not face-touching and all of the kinds of new norms that have to develop. The early researchers found that communities and societies are quite adaptable in the face of hardship, like a disaster. And I think that's what we're seeing all over the world now. I think so, too. I remember the, the blackout back in 2003. And oh, yes. Instead of everybody, you know, worrying about everything, we had big, I remember actually, cooking food with, on barbecues with my neighbors, and we all heard about the local store. Um, they were going to lose all their ice cream stock. All the neighbors, there's a big group of us, we all went up the street and bought all, all of his stuff so that he wouldn't suffer. You know, like everyone exactly. came together. <laughs> exactly. Um, the norms that develop in the aftermath of crisis are very pro-social, and people follow those new norms. I think that's a great spot to you know, end on a positive note on our uh, first segment. We're talking with Professor Kathleen Tierney and her book, Disasters, A Sociological Approach, and we'll be right back. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And 
welcome back to the show. Today we are talking with Professor Kathleen Tierney, um, and I forgot to mention, who is a professor of sociology at the University of Colorado Boulder, and her book, Disasters, A Sociological Approach. Uh, Kathleen, great first segment, lots of uh, good information there. With um, regards to uh, the um, phases, I guess, uh, of a, or cycles uh, of a steps of a disaster. Uh, can you kind of explain what some of them are, uh, pre- you know, preparedness response, and maybe um, considering where we are with COVID-19, if you're able to kind of give us an example of what was good in that cycle and what's not, what's bad in that cycle, you know, with what's going on in the world today. When uh, disaster researchers talk about the so-called disaster cycle, they're talking about a um, a process that involves four phases. The first of these is mitigation. That is, actions that are taken in advance of disasters to reduce their impacts. Um, we can think of mitigation, for example, as involving land use to keep out development in hazardous areas, building codes, that are instituted to make sure that buildings are um, constructed in ways that make them able to survive disasters. Um, Other measures like zoning and the like that are taken in advance of, of disaster. Preparedness is what most of us think about when we think about disasters. And those are things that we do in order to make us capable of being able to Um, respond when a disaster happens. Preparedness could include, for example, the development of disaster plans on the part of societies, communities, businesses, and households, training, stockpiling of equipment and resources that are going to be needed in the event of a disaster, and other things that we do when we think about okay, what are going to be the impacts and how are we going to stop them from being as bad as they could be? Mm -hmm. The third phase, response, involves what we do when something actually hits us. So if it's an earthquake, for example, how how does a national government, a state government, a local government, a business, or a household respond to try to contain the effects of this earthquake? Um, What measures are undertaken to make sure that there aren't ripple effects or knock-on effects? For example, an earthquake can cause fires. It can cause hazardous materials releases. So how do we contain those? And then recovery refers to steps that are taken to get back to where we were before the disaster event occurred, or hopefully even better. So reconstruction, rebuilding, um, the support of ongoing social morale going forward, helping businesses recover, helping households recover. And again, we're talking here about a virus, the coronavirus, but you can see um, parallels to a natural disaster. Um, How well 
prepared were we for this? Um, were the resources there? Were the plans there? Were the plans being exercised? Were the lessons from exercises being learned? Were policies well adapted to handle something like a coronavirus pandemic? And what about the response? Response now includes all the measures that are being taken in the public sector, in the private sector, in the nonprofit sector, at the level of large organizations, mid-sized and smaller organizations, households and communities? How are we responding? And is the response going to be effective to contain those ripple effects or those knock-on effects? Have we, for example, uh, conveyed appropriately to communities and to the general population of the need to hunker down, of the need to engage in social distancing, hand washing, all the other measures that are now being advocated as this virus is impacting our societies. And recovery, recovery will involve um, a massive economic recovery also, as well as trying to incorporate lessons learned from this event to better prevent it from happening again. Do you think we, after going through H1N1, SARS, MERS, do you think we were prepared? No. That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> and I say that um, understanding that there are differences in societies across the world in terms of how well they were prepared and how well they're able to respond. Um, when you talk about the general population, no, I don't think so. I don't think, and again, we can make a parallel with other kinds of disasters like hurricanes, earthquakes, floods, wildfires. Did people even in a million years perceive what the threat was? Did they understand what the threat was? Did they prepare? I would say no. I would say no, we were not prepared at the population level for, for mm -hmm. what was coming. I, I know on, on, um, uh, with SARS back in 2003, I think it was, um, yes. I worked for an organization where we had to split our staff. We, you know, people worked at home. We implemented things because we actually had people who were yes. uh, impacted yes. by SARS. So I tend to look, uh, look at things a little bit differently, having experienced that. And I, f I found that even just by listening to the news each day, um, governments uh, and uh, health agencies aren't prepared either for something like this. That is correct. And if you did a systematic survey of the general population in North America, if you did it, say, last fall, and you asked people, what was SARS? How many people do you think would even remember yeah, that's true. Not a lot, I'm sure. Not a lot. I, I know. I know myself. I, I 
even with my current contract, I know I I have to, have to kind of keep it to myself a little bit, but I I just know you should be doing this, you should be doing that. What about this? What about that? You know, having gone through it, I remember it. You know. Yes. You so, went through well, it. But many people did not. It was something that happened at a distance. Um you know, if Americans even knew it was happening in Toronto, uh, mm-hmm. that's doubtful. That, you bring People up an interesting worry point. about the things that are affecting them on a day-to-day basis. You bring up an interesting point. You know, if you said Americans, you know, um, and not just Americans, but, you know, anybody, you know, what was coming up in Toronto, do you think maybe a lot of places weren't prepared because it was happening somewhere else. You know, if it's not impacting me, so I don't have to worry about it. Oh, that's exactly right. And we know that um, that even when people can perceive a threat out there, they may not think it's threatening them personally. A lot of research shows that even when there's a generalized sense of risk, there isn't a personalized sense of risk. It won't happen to me. It won't happen yeah. to me. Because I, I, I did notice that um, I think it was in uh, – oh, I just had you know, I just had an example from SARS, and it just – as soon as it came into my head, it went out. I'll, I'll hopefully I remember by the end of the show. <laughs> but I, okay. I, I, have, I have noticed that, that, um, you know, some people were saying, you know, oh, we always need, even in my industry, the business continuity industry, we need to be prepared for, you know, when our people are not available. But they're looking at fires, you know, colds and flus. And yet so many, and I'm seeing all the messages on LinkedIn that, Nobody really was prepared for a large-scale sort of a pandemic, even though it was kind of an undercurrent somewhere. And I guess that's part of the, while it didn't impact us the last time, you know, MERS didn't touch us, H1N1 didn't touch us, SARS didn't touch us. So it just falls further and further down the, uh, uh, you know, the the attention ladder. Yes, Alex, and I, I think it's really interesting. Um, we know that from research, that um, even when an individual, say, company or an individual facility thinks about the possibility of a disaster, um, they neglect, I think, two different dimensions. Um, One is that they're thinking about their own facility and not about the supply chains on which they depend, even though business continuity planning is telling them to do just exactly that, right? Mm -hmm. They don't think about their partners, their their suppliers, their customer, et cetera, um, the way that they should. And the second thing, and they're not to blame for this really, is that they don't contemplate something that would affect the entire society or the entire global system. Mm -hmm. Who would have thought? Now, in the United States, we have had for the last 35 years catastrophic disaster planning. 
we have a catastrophic disaster plan. Catastrophic planning has been taking place. What do we think about? Well, we think about a large earthquake in Southern California. We think about an earthquake in the uh, Cascadia subduction zone in the Pacific Northwest, which would affect both the U.S. and Canada. We think about a repeat of Katrina. You know, we think about the thinkable catastrophes. Did we ever think about the unthinkable? Well, I think people that do that are in the healthcare and the public health sector and the intelligence and security sector, the kinds of people who were worried about um, bioterrorism in the aftermath of 9-11, the kind of people who have studied pandemics historically, uh, they think about society-wide or global impacts. But do you think, Alex, that your business continuity community thought about something like this? No, not on a, not not the way they should have. I don't think so at all. You know, and that'll probably get me in trouble with a few of the people listening, but <laughs> it's true. You know, I, I don't think so. It, 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 part of that, though, I wonder, is it because people are afraid, you know, to talk about, you know, destruction, you know, something on such a grand scale, or is it just too big for us to even fathom, so we just ignore it? Well, um, I think that, again, research tells us that it is very difficult for organizations to engage in true worst-case thinking, that we think about the worst case as something like a case that we know, you know, like massive flooding, a massive earthquake, the repeat of a Katrina event. So we kind of look backwards. And one of Mm -hmm. the, you know, one of the founders of the disaster research field, um, Henry Corentelli, uh, who was a World War II veteran, often said, just like generals are fighting the last war, disaster planners are planning for the last disaster. Yeah. It's always catch-up. Yeah, and researchers like um, Lee Clark at Rutgers University have talked about the need to, to plan in terms of possibilistic reasoning, not probabilistic reasoning. You know, with all the advances that have been made in probabilistic risk analysis and loss estimation modeling and related fields, those are so-called probabilistic methods, not mm-hmm. possibilistic or worst-case worst methods. It's it's in, very interesting uh, looking at things like that because having worked with people and I do remember a uh, vice president you know where me wanting to talk you know bigger scale you know the worst case scenario and he said no 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 we can't think about that because people will get panicked and they'll get all upset and there comes the panic myth there's the panic myth again <laughs> yeah you know and I. I and I just, I was kind of floored by what he said. And, you know, we had to toe the line and we looked at the regular risks, you know, the ones that everybody was familiar with rather than the, uh, you know, the ones that are beyond 
you know, the, the, the grander scale type things? Yeah, well, um, go talk to Tokyo Power Company about that in Japan with their probabilistic risk analyses that never told them that they were going to have a tsunami and a triple meltdown at their Fukushima plant. Yes. Yeah, that wasn't that was... within the realm of possibility either. No, that was um, like a, a trickle-on-down effect from an um, underwater earthquake. Yep. Which, which created then the tsunami, which then created you know, what we all saw on TV and then created the Fukushima uh, plant disaster and it just kind of spiraled. Yeah. <clears throat> yes, but, uh, but, you know, according to the majority of their risk analysts, that was not even a remote possibility. And yet yeah. it happened. And we see many instances where things that were seen as highly improbable have happened. Well, I, I learned something a while ago, uh, quite a while while ago from someone. They said, you know, the only assumption that will be proven correct in a disaster is that all your assumptions are wrong. And I think a lot of people yes. tend to work on assumptions and then never actually validate and revisit them. Exactly. If your assumptions aren't being violated, it's not really a disaster, is it? Correct. Agreed. On that note, we're going to end our second segment. We are talking with Professor Kathleen Tierney on her book, Disasters, A Sociological Approach, and we'll be right back. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back to the show. Today we are talking with Professor Kathleen Tierney on her book, Disasters, A Sociological Approach. Um, lots of great information, uh, Kathleen, in the first two segments. Now i got a question for you. Because in your book, you talk about watershed events. Is COVID-19 one of those events? We don't know yet. And I say that because when we think about a watershed event, we think about something that is going to result in major policy changes, major changes in the way that we do business, and maybe new legislation, new policies, new regulations, changes in the way that we try to tackle risk. Um, there have been 
watershed event. For example, in the United States, I would say that uh, Hurricane Katrina was a major watershed event. Um, the terrorist attacks of 2001, the financial crisis that started in 2008. These were all um, events that were defined as requiring a massive policy response and changes in the way that societies operate. We're beginning to see, I think, in the U.S. and places around the world, um, big changes in terms of how the economic fallout from this pandemic um, should be managed. Um, will these measures work if indeed they're put into place? Well, we'll have to see. Just because an event is a watershed event doesn't mean that everything goes well afterwards. It just mm -hmm. means that it was a critical juncture where decisions needed to be made. In the Great Depression um, in the United States, which was, I think, another watershed event, we saw leadership that led to changes in the provision of a social safety net for people, um, programs like Social Security. Will we see changes, for example, in the provision of health care in societies like the United States, in um, income support for people who are affected by such massive events? Let's wait and see. It, it, How I guess, will the landscape change? We don't know. Not yet. It, w now, that might be nations. Do you think society in general might make some changes? You know, how we do things, you know, outside of governments and organizations. But as people, do you see any potential for change there on how we behave? Again, in this case, Alex, it very much remains to be seen. Mm. How will people interpret what is happening and what has happened? What kind of narratives will be available for them to use? Are we going to hear, for example, in two months that societies overreacted, uh, that the measures that were undertaken to protect the population from the health threat, you know, damage the economy? Will people divide up by um, political orientation, people taking different lessons depending on what their political stance is, left versus right? Uh, mm -hmm. Will the measures that were undertaken proved to be effective or not? Will we be enduring different waves of this illness with people taking different lessons from them? And how long can people remain vigilant when they have to balance preparing for worst-case events against the day-to-day -day concerns that they have? Right, and that's a big thing right now. People, you know, I've saw in the paper today, people are concerned about walking their dogs even, and I have a dog, so uh -huh. you know. And if I'm stuck inside for you know weeks on end, you know that's going to drive us crazy. <laughs> you know, so yeah. Uh, will people, will people with kids who have been out of school and staying at home and cooped up? Maybe will these people say, "Hey, these measures were too extreme. 
Mm-hmm. But like you said, we, we're not going to know that for quite some time yet. Well, everything we know from um, disaster preparedness research says that it is very difficult to keep a high level of public vigilance year after year in the absence of new events. And why is that? Because we just focus on, you know, the next, the next day, the next thing, and our memories, you know, fade away. Well, the so, um, the behavioral economists tell us that um, there is this phenomenon called myopia, mm. where people just have a natural tendency. I'm talking about individuals now to focus on the near future. Just well, go out. You know, go out, go out and ask um, people in their early 30s how vigorously they're preparing for retirement. I remember my answer. (laughs) And I really wasn't paying attention to it back then. But retirement is going to come, right? Right. It's going to come. I I know a lot of people, you know, you're, you're still... Back then, you know, I'm still young and, you know, kind of invincible, so to speak. And you're right, you know, it's inevitable it's going to come, but I'm just not thinking that far ahead. I'm kind of focusing on the here and the now. That changed. Okay, but, so there's there's a wonderful young couple who are planning on getting married, and they want a romantic destination wedding in Sri Lanka. And they're going to pay... on their wedding to get everybody to go out to Sri Lanka and celebrate with them. And, uh, you know, some old boomer comes in and says, hey, take that $50,000 and invest it. And in 30 years, you know, you'll realize this great return. And they'll go, nah, we're going to Sri Lanka. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right? You know, well, I guess that's a part of today's society, too. You want that instant gratification. You know, not that long it's term. Just, it's just what people value in the moment from a myopic mm. posture. Right. Well, I've got another question for you. You talk about some disaster resiliency. And considering everything that's going on with COVID-19, uh, you know, um, can you talk about that a little bit more? Because you, you touched on you know, our support systems, uh, social capital, um, and CART. I know that was an acronym. Yeah, when we think about disaster resilience, we're talking about, first of all, the ability of a society or a community or a business or a household to um, be able to resist um, loss of function when a disaster occurs. In other words, they're, they're robust, they're strong, they don't experience breakdown. Um, then we also talk about not only the robustness or the ability to be strong, we also talk about the ability to recover, to bounce back, may, to where we were before or maybe even better, maybe even better. And mm-hmm. we can think about that at the level of an individual or a household or an organization or government. Um or the built environment, or in this case, the healthcare infrastructure, right? 
How mm-hmm. able is it to absorb this shock? How able is it to cope with this shock and then recover? And uh, when you mention CART, that is uh, the Community Assessment of Resilience Toolkit, that's something that local communities can use to assess their resilience. And there are many other scorecards out there and measures out there that try to capture this um, both dimensions, both the ability to resist and not experience decline and the ability to recover from declines when they happen. Do you have any uh, examples of um, resilience that people might be able to take away and have a look, you know, considering what's going on, you know, right now that they might be able to leverage? Sure. Sure. I think that um, we think about resilience as, let's say if we're talking about households or businesses, the ability to exercise different options. Are you stuck in one situation or can you jump and exercise other resources? At the household level, for example, um, how much savings do you have? Uh, How able are you to work from home and still get a paycheck? Mm-hmm. Or don't you have the option of being able to do that because you're a, um, say you're a server or a cook in a, in a restaurant and the restaurant has shut down? Um, are you in the gig economy where your paycheck may vary from day to day or do you have a steady paycheck coming in? Mm-hmm. Are you a younger person who will be able to um, whether the next couple of decades in terms of your 401k, is there time for it to recover? Or are you an older person who may be on shaky ground and you don't have very many options? So these are, I mean, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about in connection with the, um, the coronavirus has to do with economic resilience. How long can companies hang on um, before they get into real trouble with their creditors and their cash flow? How long can an employee hang on? Mm-hmm. I just heard on the news today that in Denmark, um, the government has decided to pay everybody three quarters of the salary that they would have made if they were working indefinitely. Wow. That sounds like a pretty good resilience measure to me. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. I didn't come across that one today, but that sounds pretty good. But here, um, you know, in North America, we're looking at who has paid sick leave, who doesn't get paid if they take sick leave, who does the, um, who does the Family Leave Act apply to, who doesn't it, who would benefit from a payroll tax deduct, um, reduction, who couldn't take advantage of that. We have all different groups in different positions in this economy that are differentially resilient. Mm -hmm. Well, on that note, believe it or not, we've come to the end of our show. 
Uh, actually, I've got about two minutes left. Do you have any closing comments you'd like to let us know about you know, uh, disasters and uh, society and the, the approach that you covered in your book? Well, I think that one of the one of the lessons from my book and from other research is that investments in prevention and mitigation really make a difference. We can save whether we're talking about natural disasters or whether we're talking about a pandemic, we can save a lot by investing mm-hmm. in prevention. Everybody talks in this particular case about flattening the curve. Mm-hmm. We want to take steps that can, in the medium term and the long term, reduced the social and economic disruption of this terrible event. I, th- I think you said it well. You know, if we did the preparing, the planning up front, we'd be better better positioned, I think. Oh, there's so much more that can be said, Alex, just so much oh. more. Oh, I know. I agree. I agree. There's you know, reams and reams of material, I could say, you know. But on that note... I'm in the final minute, so I want to thank you, uh, Kathleen, for joining us, and congratulations on your book, Disasters, A Sociological Approach. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for Uh, having me, Alex. It's been a real pleasure. It it has been a pleasure. I learned a a lot, especially, you know, relating everything to the COVID-19 situation right now. I it, it really opens my eyes about some uh, different aspects here that you don't hear about. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. And to all the listeners out there, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.